Good afternoon, everyone. Um, that's uh, a clip from The Three Amigos. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's a good movie. I don't know if you've ever been really thirsty uh, like, like two of the guys in the movie. I mean, so thirsty that you can't think of anything else. Well, your sole aim in life is getting a tall, cold glass of water. I think the thirstiest that I've ever been was when I was about 10 years old. Um, it was the middle of summer, and I'd been on a pretty long bike ride for a kid, 10-year-old kid. Uh, I was on the farm near where I grew up, um, at a place near the town of Neville. Now, no one's ever heard of Neville, so when people ask, I tell them that it's near Barry, just down the road from Barry. For some reason, most people don't find all that, that all that helpful. Uh, so just in case you're still in the dark, Neville is between Orange and Bathurst, west of Sydney. Anyway, I'm halfway home on my bike ride uh, and I get a flat tyre. Uh, and instead of, I have two options, I can take the road all the way around, but it's another six k's. It's the middle of the day and I'm hot and exhausted. I decide to take the shortcut through the paddocks, but that involves climbing fences and hauling my bike over the fence and pushing it through a swamp and long grass. For about the last, it was thirsty work, I can tell you. For about the last 45 minutes of that walk with my bike, all I could think of was getting a drink and I was hallucinating about a, a glass of homemade orange juice that mum used to make us as kids. It was my one all-consuming goal in life at that point. In today's story, Jesus uses the imagery of water to tell a Samaritan woman that like drinking water on a hot day, he could satisfy her deepest needs. And rather than looking for meaning and satisfaction in all the wrong places, he points to true worship to God, which centres on himself as being the way to find true satisfaction. Well, let's pray before we get into our story. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this story in John chapter 4. Um, Father, thank you that um, you are the answer to our longings and our, our desires for satisfaction. Thank you that you quench our thirst and thank you that you are the object of true worship. We pray that you would speak to our hearts today as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, by way of introduction, John tells us at the beginning of chapter 4 that the Pharisees, some of the religious leaders of the day, had got wind of the fact that Jesus was baptising more people than a guy called John the Baptist. John, who wrote, it's very confusing all these Johns, but John, who wrote the Gospel, has already introduced us to John the Baptist as a kind of herald to pronounce who Jesus was, to announce his coming. So Jesus hears about what the Pharisees heard. He can sense trouble is on its way and he thinks it's time to get out of town for a while. He probably does this to avoid trouble with the Pharisees at this point. So he, desires, he decides to leave Jerusalem and go back up north to the northern part of Israel, to Galilee, where he grew up. And so we come to our passage. And 
in verse 4, we're told that Jesus has to go through a place called Samaria, which is right in the middle of Jerusalem in the south and Galilee in the north. That was the quickest way to get to Galilee, and that's the way that most people went up to Galilee. It's helpful at this point to have a little bit of background about Samaria and the Samaritans. Samaritans didn't like Jews, and Jews didn't like Samaritans. The reasons were both historical and religious. Samaria used to be what was at one time known as the Northern Kingdom of Israel. If you know your history of, of, um, of, of Israel very quickly, back in the old days it used to be a united kingdom, but then under Solomon's son Rehoboam it was split into two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, over 700 years before the time of Jesus, was beat up by the Assyrians. The Assyria was a neighbouring empire um, who came and attacked um, attacked the northern kingdom and defeated it and dragged most of the people away into exile. The result was that the northern kingdom as, as a power, as a nation, basically ceased to exist. That was the end of it. The Assyrians then deported a whole heap of people from Assyria to the northern kingdom to repopulate it. They interbred with it with a few Jews who are left in the northern kingdom and they introduced their religious customs and they, they intermixed racially as well as culturally and, in, and, and with their religious practices. They were no longer true worshippers of Yahweh, the Jewish God. This new nation became known as Samaria. Although politically it actually wasn't separate from from Israel, from Judea in Jesus' time. It was still seen as a separate nations. So Jesus comes to Samaria. He comes to rest at a place called Jacob's Well, a hot, dry country. It's the middle of the day. John tells us it's the sixth hour. And in, the, in their reckoning of time, that means it was midday, the hottest part of the day. A Samaritan woman comes to the well to draw water. In those days, they didn't have running taps. That was where you came to get water. It was customary for women to come and get water. But there's something different, something strange about this story. Because it was also customary for the women to come at the coolest part of the day. In the morning and in the evening. And they came together as a rule, as a group. But here was one woman coming in the middle of the day. John is alerting us to the fact that there is something, something different, something out of place. This woman wasn't one of the crowd. She was coming to avoid the rest of the women. This woman was an outcast. Well, the story continues. She goes to draw water and then she's surprised by hearing a voice call her, address her, a male's voice. Jesus asks her, will you give me a drink? The fact that she's surprised is shown by her response in verse 9. You are, it's up on the screen. That screen, I'm looking at the other screen. You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? She's surprised by a double whammy here. Two things surprise her. 
As John helpfully adds, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. They just don't talk to each other. But, but here, Jesus addresses this woman. On top of that, not only is she a Samaritan, but she's a woman. In that culture, it, was, it, was not, it wasn't kosher for a man to address a woman. We've seen little hints in, the, in, in John's Gospel already that Jesus doesn't care about social conventions, doing what's expected. Last week, if you were here, we saw it with the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was, was, was one of religi- Israel's religious leaders. He was used to being uh, addressed with, um, tre- treated with, um, what's the word, um, respect. But Jesus... Jesus cuts through all that. He doesn't bother with the social niceties. He has no regard for social status. This story comes hot on the heels of Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. And I think John deliberately contrasts the two encounters. Nicodemus was one of Israel's leaders, well-respected, influential, powerful. The Samaritan woman was an outcast for the Jews an outcast in a society of outcasts. And yet Jesus makes time for them both. In fact, the one who Jesus goes out of his way to engage with and initiate with isn't Nicodemus, but this outcast woman. Jesus recognises no class or gender distinctions. Both the woman and Nicodemus have equal dignity in Jesus' eyes. Both are created in God's image. Well, Jesus keeps engaging the woman. In verse 10, he says that if she knew the gift of God and who it is she's talking to, he could have given her living water. Like with Nicodemus last week, Jesus turns the tables. He turns a spotlight from himself onto the woman. Jesus was the one who started off asking for water but now he's offering her living water. Jesus knows that this woman is thirsty, but it's not thirsty for physical water, but for something much deeper. The Samaritan woman thinks that Jesus is talking about actual water, and it's a, it's a reasonable con- conclusion because we don't see it in English, but in the, in the Greek language, in the original language, the term living water can also mean fresh water or running water so it's not unnatural when Jesus is talking about fresh water that she's thinking about water that she can drink then in verse 13 Jesus makes it clear that in fact he's not talking about ordinary water that only quenches your thirst for a while but water that satisfies a much deeper need the water which leads to eternal life Growing up on a farm gave me a great appreciation of water. Uh, as you know, in Australia, water is such a precious commodity and much of the state is still in the grip of drought. Um, I saw the, the effects of drought firsthand uh, on the farm and it, it could be devastating. I remember seeing sheep and cattle dying um, in, in dried up dams because they would get stuck in the mud and they couldn't get out. They'd go into the dam with a skerrick of water in and try to get the last drop of water and then they couldn't get out. But then rain would come and 
Almost overnight, the landscape would change. What was a dust bowl became a carpet of green and you could almost see the new life seeping up from beneath the soil. The transformation was amazing. That picture of water bringing life is an image that we see used a lot in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. And it points to God bringing life and saving his people and bringing hope. Um, one example is from Isaiah. Isaiah is one of the prophets in the Old Testament and he loves the image of water and using that to illustrate God bringing deliverance and hope to his people. Let's look at one example. Isaiah 35 verse 5 says, Then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool and thirsty ground bubbling springs. It's a beautiful image, isn't it? Isaiah is talking about a time when God would come and intervene with his people. He's writing at a time when the people are under bondage. They're, they're in slavery in the land of Babylon. They've been dragged off from the southern kingdom of Israel and they are seemingly without hope. They are under God's judgment because they had disobeyed God and the consequence was that they were no longer in God's country. It seemed that God had forsaken them. But now Isaiah is pronouncing their deliverance. God would show up and bring new life, symbolised by physical healing and water bringing life to the land. And here Jesus, in this story in John 4, Jesus is telling the Samaritan woman that he can give her living water that brings new life. If you were here last week, remember with the story of Nicodemus, that with, with him too, Jesus used that picture of water along with spirit to describe the new birth that Nicodemus must have to have new life with God. Now Jesus is telling the woman that she can have that same new beginning that will bring life, eternal life, as he says in verse 15. So this water brings life and it also satisfies. As Jesus says in verse 14, whoever drinks this water will never thirst again. The woman is still thinking on a purely physical level. She's thinking, how does this work? How can, how can I keep having water without having to come back to this well? How can, I, how can I be satisfied? But Jesus is locking onto a deeper need she has for satisfaction and meaning. And this is shown by where he goes with a conversation in the next section. In our second section, verses 16 to 18, Jesus subtly hints to the woman that she's been thirsting after the wrong things things that ultimately can't satisfy her thirst. Jesus suddenly changes the conversation and says to the woman, okay, look, go, go and tell, call your husband and bring him here. At this point, she starts to squirm because Jesus is starting to hone in on the very thing that makes her an outcast. Have a look what she says. I don't have a husband, she says. 
Jesus doesn't beat around the bush, but proceeds to tell her the whole truth, which, of course, she already knows. You're right when you have no husband. The fact is that you've had five husbands and the man you are now with isn't your husband at all. What you say is perfectly true. For a woman in that culture, to have a husband was a ticket to security and identity. John doesn't spell it out for us, but Jesus' sudden change of subject to put the spotlight on on the area where the woman is most vulnerable is a clue that Jesus is wanting to gently push her to find where her thirst is really leading her. As we'll see, what Jesus wants to do is show her that the only place that a thirst can truly be satisfied isn't in men, isn't in a relationship, but is in true worship with God. Like the whole of the book of John, this story is a wonderfully skillful story that is designed not just to give us a record of this, this woman's encounter with Jesus. At the same time, God is speaking through the black and white words of this text to use his spirit to speak to you and I. And just as Jesus knew the heart of this woman, he also hones in on our deepest hones in on our deepest needs. You see, we can all relate to the idea of being thirsty, of, of needing a drink of water, but we can also relate to the things that we long for. We, all, we also have needs that we long for, things that give us meaning, things that we thirst after. Perhaps you're like the woman who's looked for security and acceptance in relationships. I was a bit like that. Back in my single days before I met Julie, back in the dark ages, the idea of getting married, finding the right woman and getting married dominated my thinking. It, it, it affected which youth group I went to. It, 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 was, it was always there. I was a young Christian and in my head I knew that, that my identity and, and my, and my um, satisfaction was in God. But in my heart, I still thought that I wouldn't really be happy until I found the right woman. Or for you, perhaps it's with your job. Perhaps it gives you a sense of achievement and satisfaction. You have an identity that goes along with what you do and your position. Or you feel like you're doing something worthwhile. Perhaps you're blessed with it. Perhaps it's at uni. Perhaps you're blessed with a good brain and work ethic which enables you to do well. You want to keep aiming for excellence. And success is catching. It's even addictive. But working hard, finding satisfaction in a job or study, yes, they're good things. And a loving relationship, particularly in marriage, is a wonderful gift from God. But Jesus wants to warn us, like he warns the Samaritan woman, that to look for ultimate satisfaction and meaning in anything other than God is setting ourselves up for failure. And at the end of the day, it will let us down. Because these things can't deliver. These things can't be God for us. Only God can be God. 
Well, the conversation continues between Jesus and the, and the woman. The spotlight that Jesus has put on her personal life is feeling at this stage more like a blowtorch. And she, she is desperately um, uncomfortable and desperate to change the subject. She turns to a reliable source of controversy that is bound to keep Jesus occupied for a while. So she turns the topic to religious practices and the differences between Jews and Samaritans. Specifically, she turns the topic to worship and where the proper place of worship is. Jesus goes with the flow and turns the conversation to what true worship is all about and invites her to see in our third section that true worship is found in Jesus. Now a bit of background here is worthwhile. The Samaritans believed that God had established the, the proper place of worship on a place called Mount Gerizim, which was, which was smack in the middle of Samaria. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible, what we now know, know as the Pentateuch. They based that belief on the book of Deuteronomy uh, and also going way back to the beginning of, Gen or not the beginning of Genesis, but uh, the story of Abraham in Genesis where Abraham set up an altar in that same place. So they believed that was the place that God ordained as the proper place of worship. The Jews had a different opinion because they believed in the rest of the Old Testament and in the rest of the Old Testament is the story of King David setting up his kingdom in Jerusalem. David's son Solomon, Solomon was told by God to build a temple and the temple was established as a permanent place where Jews were to come and worship God. And so this controversy, the Jews believed it was Jerusalem the Samaritans believed it was in Samaria. The woman tries to buy into that controversy. She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. But Jesus will have none of that. He's not going to be drawn into that argument. Instead, he says that the old argument is, is irrelevant now because something has changed everything. Have a look at verse 21 with me. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And then down in verse 23. Not working. Here we go. Verse 23, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in, the, in spirit and truth for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. The word here for time is actually hour in the original Greek. Unfortunately, the NIV translation hasn't picked up on it and we lose the effect of it. When Jesus uses the term the hour in John's Gospel, as in the hour is coming or has come, he is referring to his coming death on the cross. And I think that's what he means here too. Because Jesus' death changes everything when it comes to how we worship God. Before, the temple of, in Jerusalem was the place where people went to meet with God. But now, 
the Son of God going to the cross is going to change all that. A time is coming and has now come, says Jesus. At this point, the cross is still to come, but, but God himself has already broken into human history. Jesus is already here. The king has already come and is just waiting for his coronation with his death and then him rising again from the dead. So now, instead of worshipping in Jerusalem or on this or that mountain, worship, the way that we meet with God, the way that we engage with him, has all changed. Jesus says true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Bible refers to God as spirit, and makes a very strong contrast between spirit and flesh. Flesh is everything that belongs to created human beings, and spirit means belonging to God, coming from God. The idea here is to worship God as God, to worship him the right way, not the way invented by humans. Now, Jesus doesn't explain it for us here, but in John's Gospel, we've already come across that idea that worshipping in a particular place as the proper way to worship has already been done away with. Specifically, Jesus has signalled that the temple in Jerusalem, which the Jews thought is the proper place to worship, is about to be replaced by something, or rather someone, infinitely greater. Back in John chapter 2, Jesus announced that destroy this temple in and I will raise it up in three days. He was talking about himself. He would be the new temple. And what he meant by that was that where people must come to meet with God, he, he was the place that we met with God. He who was fully human, who was fully man, who, who can interact and identify fully with us because he was one of us. And at the same time, he is fully God. He is the gateway between us and God because he is uniquely qualified to allow us access to God. He's the portal, if you like, between us and God for meeting and connecting with God. Where the temple in Jerusalem had gone wrong is that it had turned worship into a human institution, a complex web of human rules and regulations designed to control worship but it only served to make worship something external to the human heart and to make it into a tool where God was kept at arm's length. The people were worshipping in human flesh rather than in spirit and truth. So Jesus announces to the woman that a new era has come. She still doesn't get it. She still tries to, to wrap up the conversation that by saying that one called Messiah will come and when he comes, he will explain everything. Now, as a Samaritan, she probably didn't have a full picture of who the Messiah was. There wasn't a, an idea of, of, of a Messiah in, amongst the Samaritans, but the Messiah was someone who was a teacher to the Samaritans. So this woman has that same idea that... The teacher will come, the Messiah will come, who will come and explain God's truth to them. But once again, Jesus takes the conversation in a direction that she doesn't expect. 
in verse 26, he simply tells the woman, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. Now, as with a lot of the narrative in John's Gospel, we're not told straight out exactly what the woman made of this. How much did she understand of Jesus' words? Did she put everything together? We don't know. But we are given a strong hint that she did come to put her faith in him. Perhaps the penny did finally drop because in our last section, verses 39 to 42, we, we see, we didn't read it in our Bible reading, but we hear that a whole lot of other people, a whole lot of the other Samaritans from a hometown came to believe in Jesus as well. What happened was that the woman went back to the town. She told her story, what Jesus said to her, that she, she knew everything about him. And she said, could this be the Messiah? The Samaritans are curious. A whole bunch of them come back to Jesus. They meet with him. They urge him to stay with them for two days. And the result, we told in verse 41, the Samaritans say, we no longer believe just because of what you said. That's the woman they're talking to. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Quite a remarkable grasp of who Jesus is after only two days. They recognise that Jesus is the one who saves them. He is the one who deals with the fact that they are staring down the barrel of God's anger because of their sin, their rebellion against him. And what's really significant in their statement is that Jesus is the saviour not only of Israel, not only of the Jews, God's chosen people, but saviour of the world. Remember that these were Samaritans? In the eyes of the Jews, God's chosen people, they were rejected, they were outcasts. And here's the irony of what's happening in John's Gospel up to this point. The Jewish leader, remember Nicodemus, the one we met back in chapter 3, he didn't get what Jesus was on about. He didn't get who Jesus was. But these Samaritans, the ones supposed to have it all wrong, these outcasts, they got it. They understood. And John uses this story to introduce the idea that Jesus' coming changes things not only for Israel, but for the whole world. He came for the world. He died for the world. Back in chapter 3, verse 16, John says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. And now in chapter 4, verse 42, we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Well, let's bring it all together. Jesus comes to Samaria and breaks all the social conventions to engage with an, outcome, with an outcast woman from a race of pariahs. He asks her for a drink and then tells her that he can offer her living water. He tells her that she need never thirst again. Jesus then turns the spotlight onto her, onto her heart, and hones in on the things that she really thirsts after stability and security in a male partner. The woman tries to deflect attention away from herself by engaging in a tried and true controversy. Where to worship? Jesus tells her that true worship isn't about a place, 
but it's centered on worshiping God truly and that's found through Jesus himself. I just want to finish off with some thoughts about what the passage means for us. We've already seen that just as the woman looked for her identity and security in the wrong places, for all of us, part of the human condition is to lock onto something to give us those things. And we all naturally turn to the wrong places because our default instinct is to find security in things or people rather than in God. What Jesus was driving the woman to see was that she was looking for satisfaction in the wrong places because she was worshipping the wrong things. And our hearts are restless and land on the wrong things when we worship in the wrong places. Jesus told the woman that worship isn't about a place at all. It's not about a temple or a mountain. It's about himself. She was wanting to externalise worship to, to confine it to this mountain in Samaria. It's a very human thing to do and we do it as well. We may not think that we have to come into this building at four o'clock on a Sunday afternoon to worship God. We might do it in other ways. We may subtly make deals with God. If I'm involved with this or that ministry and give this time up for God, then the rest of the time is mine. We subtly compartmentalise God, put him in a box, control him, keep him at arm's length. But if we're not giving God our whole heart and our whole life, then we will look elsewhere for real satisfaction of meaning and identity. Maybe in a hobby. For me, I struggle with running, struggling not to get obsessed with training for a half marathon. What is it for you? Or maybe you're not yet a believer. Maybe you're struggling with the idea of letting God in, of handing over the reins and let, letting him take control. Let me say I understand that. Because I also struggled with that before I became a Christian. But once I let go, once I said to Jesus, I want you to be king, I surrender control. Let me say it was like a huge weight falling off my shoulders. Because I recognised at that point that the one in the driver's seat really was the saviour of the world. And there's no one else who can provide security and meaning who quenches my thirst. Amen.